You are listening to a podcast from Essendon Presbyterian Church in Melbourne, recorded 10 a.m. on March 26, 2023, presented by Reverend Chris Duke. Going to open up to uh, Zechariah. We're into chapter 10. We're going to read the first five verses. Let's give attention to God's word. Ask the Lord for rain. In the time of the latter rain, the Lord will make flashing clouds. He will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. For the idols speak delusion. The diviners envision lies and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore the people wend their ways like sheep. They are in trouble because there is no shepherd. My anger is kindled against the shepherds and I will punish the goat herds for the Lord of hosts will visit his flock, the house of Judah, and he will make them as his royal horse in the battle. From him comes the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow. From him every ruler together. They shall be like mighty men who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. They shall fight because the Lord is with them and the riders on horses shall be put to shame. Would you pray with me? Dear gracious Heavenly Father, as we consider these five verses of Zechariah, we pray that you would open our minds and open our hearts to your word and open these words to application for our lives, because we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs) Certainly from Zechariah chapter 9 to chapter 11, we have this prophetic teaching that tells that the Jews will defeat the Greeks in future days. Now, at at this time, they didn't know much about the Greeks. Of course, this would happen under the reign of the Maccabees, some 300 years into the future. Chapters 9 to 11 is a type of a new deliverance. It's a new exodus. It's on the scale of the original exodus. Along with these great and wonderful future events of salvation, we also have the message of the coming of the king, which we discussed last week. These exilic Jews, and for us today, are being called, we're being called to put our trust in God for all our needs. And they were being called to put their trust in God for all their needs. Now, when Moses led the children of Israel safely through the Red Sea. And then afterwards, immediately afterwards, we read in Exodus chapter 15, verse 2, they sang this long song of deliverance, a song of joy. But in verse 2 it says, The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And then when the children of Israel were finally 
allowed to enter the promised land. Some 40 years later, Moses recalled all that God had done for them, all the great saving acts, and said to them in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord himself is God, there is none other besides him. For this very reason, the Jews were given Zechariah's prophecy. And we also are given it today so that we will all put our trust and we will all revere the Lord as our own God. And Zechariah 10 to, verses 1 to 5 is where the Lord is depicted, is depicted as the great shepherd of the people of Judah. It's an, an image that's full of comfort. It's full of encouragement for all God's people. The Lord cares for his people, even though there's evidence of idolatry in this camp among this people at this time when Zechariah gives this prophecy. And Zechariah compares and then he contrasts the idols that they had with the Lord God himself. And then he compares them with the false shepherds, with the true shepherd, Yahweh, so that we can see that the Lord is our true shepherd. As we look at verses 1 to 3, it's sometimes difficult to see truth from a lie, to know what is true and to know what is false. In addition, we struggle to see and know the difference between God himself, the true and the living God, and idols. So Zechariah, he lines up those idols, those false gods for us, just like in a police lineup, along with the true God, Israel's true shepherd, Yahweh himself. And he stands on the other side of the mirrored wall or the, the mirrored window. And beside him, Zechariah lines up those idols and the false shepherds that have misled the people. And then he makes them turn first to the right, my right, and to the left so that we can see the unique character and the attributes of the God who is there, the true God who is there. Obviously, Zechariah wants us to pick the Lord from this lineup. He wants the true and the real God, the shepherd of his people, to stand out against the others. So how does he do that? At the end of chapter 9, if you'll recall, the prophet speaks of a coming day, a coming day of blessing. In this coming day, the world will be renewed where grain and wine will abound. New wine, actually, it says. New wine actually isn't, it doesn't have any alcohol yet. It hasn't fermented. And that sets the scene for the beginning of chapter 10. How is God going to bless his people? Well, before the new heavens and the new earth ever come, we are given verse 1. Zechariah tells us the key to blessing. Some of the most optimistic people are those who live on the land. Our farmers, every autumn they get out onto their tractors and they turn over the ground to plant new crops. They plant with the hope, they plant with the expectation that it's going to rain. 
that there will be enough moisture in the ground to germinate the seed. And then they anticipate follow-up rains for the plants to grow. Farmers are great optimists. They hope that the rain will come. So as the Jews in this exilic community longed for it to rain in their land, the prophet says this, ask the Lord for rain. In the time of the latter rain, the Lord will make flashing, flashing clouds. He will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. God is the Lord of the rain. And it has very little to do with climate change, theology and ideology today. Here is a call to prayer. Ask the Lord for rain. And the Jews like us need food to survive. So the people had to work as we also do. They had to prepare fields, they had to remove rocks and weeds, then plough and sow their fields. And this reminds us of God's decree to Adam. Right back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, after the fall into sin, in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Work is necessary even indispensable. However, work alone is not enough to guarantee provision. You see, mankind cannot make it rain. The Israelites had no way of guaranteeing a harvest, even with our techno technological knowledge today. All of the advances we have today, our understanding of the weather, and we know that James is the most um, knowledgeable person about the weather in our community. But our ability to control the weather, to control the rain, is extremely limited. And when we accomplish something, we have a problem in another area, don't we? It could be a natural disaster. It could be a, a new plant disease. It could be drought. Not only must we work, but we also need to pray. It's something that we're forgotten about, people. We must humbly appeal to our creator and redeemer God who knows no boundaries, he knows no limits, who is the only great power in the universe who will ensure our needs. Prayer says that he is God and there is no other. Prayer is an appeal to God for our needs. It's a confession of our weaknesses, friends, and it's a dependence and a trust in him. But for many of us, we neither think nor act. If we need God's help at all, we turn to the idol of self-reliance where its evidence is our lack of prayer. So often we fail to invite the Holy Spirit to come and lead us in our daily lives. So often we fail to ask God for wisdom but display our arrogance in the pride of our own intellect. So often we think we can work things out. However, we have a very clear need for God's help and therefore we have a very good need, a clear need for prayer. James 4 verse 2 reminds us, yet you do not have because you do not ask. As we rely less on ourselves, we have a greater sense of God's power 
and goodness to ask him in faith. Even the simple blessing of rain. Falling to water crops is by trusting and being dependent and prayerful that's looking to God to provide. In a world marked by sin and death, God answers prayer by breaking the clouds and sending showers of, of, of rain on the land to give food to eat and crops to sell as he mercifully cares for his people. Friends, it's a reminder to us of the importance of prayer and our dependence on God for everything. Jesus was right to teach in Matthew 6 verse 11 on the mount. He says, give us this day our daily bread. How easy we forget God's ordinary gifts of grace. Rain and crops and daily bread are the gifts that he gives when we ask. But today we just go to the supermarket, don't we? We so easily forget the grace of God. Pray for showers of blessing, great and small. Pray for daily bread and daily mercy. But that's not the big lesson of verse 1 in Zechariah 10. The prophet's main point is not only to remind us to pray, but to whom we should pray to. When God's people cry, the Lord hears and the Lord answers. The path of blessing is a path of prayerfulness. But tragically and all too common, God's people often embark on another path. Verse 2 it says, For the idols speak delusion. The diviners envision lies. And they tell false false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore the people wend their way like sheep. They are in trouble because there is no shepherd. Now the teraphim, as they were called, little statuettes, pagan gods, used in divination and fertility rituals. They were a constant temptation in Israel prior to the exile. God judged them for adultery, uh, for idolatry. And then they featured in everyday life in pagan Babylon under the Persians as well. It seems that the exiles hung on to these teraphim, these idols, these little statuettes. They hung on to the paganism of Babylon and Persia. It had penetrated their lives as God's people. The dominant values, the, the practices of the world sneak into the lives and the hearts of the people. It wasn't that they rejected God of their fathers and replaced him with idols. No, this was much more subtle. They want to fit into the present culture. They didn't want to stand out in the crowd. Like their fathers, they added paganism to the worship of God. Now, I'm pretty sure that you don't have any of these little statuettes in your home. If I was to come and visit your home, I'm sure that none of us worship these little statuettes. But let's not be too quick to dismiss Zachariah's challenge. There yet may be false gods and idols that have found a safe place in your heart. And the Apostle Paul spoke about the sins of the Colossian church. In Colossians 3 verse 5 he says, 
your greed is idolatry. There are no statues here. They're just, it's just greed. It's a heart idol. Or listen to the Apostle John at the end of his first letter in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. He's anxious to see this little fledgling church to be free from idols. What kind of idols does he have in mind? Well, if we go to ch back to chapter 2, 15 to 16, we have a there, I think, a very clear definition of idolatry. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Here's the contrast. Do you see it? It unmasks the real nature of idolatry. It's the practice of fixing our deepest love on the world or the things of the world rather than on our Lord. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. That's idolatry. These are heart idols. Anything you sacrifice for and or devote yourself to and invent your hearts uh, or invest your heart's deepest affections in this isn't, that isn't God, well, friends, it's an idol. So before you shrug off Zachariah's rebuke of idolatry, we all need to do our own check on our own lives, our own quick heart check, if you like. And we don't need to go to a cardiologist here. We need to examine ourselves. There just might be a little terror from there lurking in your heart, some remnant of the culture, some artefact of worldliness that has crept quietly into your life and taken up its residence. There may be those real idols that are kept locked away in the shadows. Could it be the idol of pride? Where pride drives you to seek approval, to, to build a reputation, to crave affirmation, to long for praise to sacrifice family on the altar of work. What are the idols of your heart? We all need to answer that. And Zechariah puts them alongside the Lord in his lineup, and he asks us all to take a good hard look. Which one can really satisfy the deepest need of your soul? And Zechariah wants to set God and your idols in contrast. So like Cowper, the hymn writer, we might sing along with him. He says, The dearest idols I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. If we're going to compare between God and idols today, look at how Zechariah describes idols in verse 2. He says, For the idols speak delusion. The diviners envision lies. The idols, he says, are utter nonsense. The diviners who use them only see lies. They dream, their dreams are false. Their consolation is ultimately empty. The truth is that the idols we run after lie to us. If they offer comfort, they rob us of joy. They offer us dreams, then cheat us of hope. They talk big but never deliver. 
You can't trust the glittering promises of your heart's idols. And when you give over to them, see what happens in verse 2 again later. Therefore the people wend their way like sheep. I could say a lot more about sheep here, but you know, sheep follow. They are in trouble because there is no shepherd. Here there's no one to follow. Sex and money and reputation and appearances and drink and relationships and work and children and marriage and divorce and pornography and gluttony, whatever is our idol, some of them good and lawful, some of them wicked and perverse, Zechariah says our idols deceive. The solution to your heart's dilemma will only make matters worse, never better. And so they leave us forlorn and lost and in trouble because there is no shepherd. Your heart idols can't save you, they won't help you, they can't deliver you, they can't fix you, they can't comfort you. Idols are lifeless, powerless, worthless, empty, blind and dead. But the Lord who is our shepherd never deserts his flock. Then we come to verse 3, my anger is kindled against the shepherds and I will punish the goat herds. False shepherds desert the sheep and lead them to, po to the poison of idolatry. There's a warning for the false shepherds that Len read earlier in Ezekiel 34. For the Lord of hosts will visit his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them as his royal horse in the battle. But the Lord who cares for his his flock, the house of Judah. So the question is, why do we need idols when we have the Lord? The Lord who is loving and faithful. That's what Zechariah wants us to contemplate. Whatever was I ever thinking to need these idols, running after my own lusts as if satisfying them could ever, could ever really satisfy all they ever did was to lead me further into darkness or further down the rabbit hole. For those of you who don't understand Australian language, that's a bit of Australian slang. I'm sorry about that. In my younger days, uh, we'd go ferreting. And we'd dig out the rabbit holes and we'd send the ferret down and sometimes the ferrets didn't come out. You see... Ultimately, these idols, they make us bound. They bind us up. And all the while, the God of grace and the God of glory, he still cares for his flock and he says, ask me and I will give you rain. Ask me and I will give you rain. Ask me and I will answer you. Unlike your dumb, mute idols, for I am the Lord who speaks and acts. I am the living God, mighty to save and to deliver. For I can satisfy your heart when no other can. And Zechariah helps us to see the worthiness of the Lord to be trusted in. 
to see the Lord as our shepherd by way of contrast. And as we look at verses 4 to 5, this time he shows us that it is the Lord who is our shepherd who cares for his sheep. And he does this by providing his sheep with better shepherds and especially one in particular. Look at verse 4. There are three images of a coming ruler who will do all for the sheep what the other leaders and what the other shepherds failed to do. From him comes the cornerstone. From him the tent peg. From him the battle bow. From him every ruler together. This true leader will be the cornerstone. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus quotes this verse in Matthew 21, verse 42, referring to himself. Jesus is the cornerstone. Isaiah 28, verse 16 says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. And of course, First Peter Chapter 2, 6 and 7 tells that Isaiah's promise is fulfilled in Jesus as the cornerstone. In his atoning work, he is the stone that the builders rejected and he becomes the cornerstone upon which the whole structure of his church is built. He is the true leader, the cornerstone. Now the second image we have here of a true leader is describing himself or describing him as a tent peg. Now that's a word also used in Isaiah. And the Lord's, it's, it's in chapter 22, 23 to 24. It describes Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, one of Israel's leaders. And the Lord says of Eliakim, I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will become a seat of honour for the house of his father. All the glory of his family will hang on him, its offspring and offshoots, all its lesser vessels from the bowls to all the jars. Friends, he will be so stable and so secure that all the hopes and all the expectations, all the trust and confidence of his people will rest on him. He will hold it fast. He will be the anchor for all your hope, he will be a secure hook that will hold fast the deepest needs of your soul. We can rest on him all our weight, all our faith, and he will bear us up and hold us secure, friends. Then he describes Jesus as a battle bow. A battle bow. So here is the theme of spiritual combat. And conquest. Jesus will triumph over sin and over the devil. And fourthly speaking, not now of Jesus, but of other rulers who will come in his wake. In the wake of the appearing of Jesus, the cornerstone, the secure peg, the battle bow, will come an array of other faithful rulers and leaders, true shepherds who will care for the flock that the Lord will raise up. Jesus, the cornerstone, secure peg, and battle bow is the one to come. And Jesus describes himself in such a way in John chapter 10. He is the good shepherd. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. 
and he goes before them, and his sheep follow him, for they know his voice. In Jesus, the care of the Lord for his flock reaches its pinnacle. The Lord demonstrates his love for us that in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Compare the qualities of the good shepherd, friends, who lays down his life for his sheep with the broken and lying promises of your idols. In the wake of the Lord's coming, he gives others to lead us, to shepherd us. They're unlike the false shepherds who lead God's people to idolatry. Rather, as uh, verse 5 says, they shall be like mighty men who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. They shall fight because the Lord is with them and the riders on horses shall be put to shame. It's the knowledge that Jesus is with them in the fight. The cornerstone, the secure peg, the battle bow, the great shepherd of the sheep who faces down the enemy, who gives his life for his flock. And Jesus is with them and with us always, even to the end of the age. Your stay in the fight as you remember, he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. So friends, press on. You never sign a truce with sin when you know that the Lord your God who raised up Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, will. And he will equip you with everything good for doing his work in you. You do it because you know that the Lord is with you. So how does the Lord care for his sheep, care for his flock? Well, he sends them Jesus. He sends them Jesus and he sends ministers and pastors and elders to be his under-shepherds, following the model and following the pattern laid down by Christ himself, strengthened in the knowledge that the Lord himself is with them as they care for the flock. God's provision for his sheep is complete. Friends, ask him for rain and he will split the skies. Your idols are mute and impotent. But God answers the prayer of his people. False shepherds desert the flock and leave them to their predatory idols. But God sends his son to rescue you. He is the cornerstone, the secure peg, the battle bow. And with him every ruler that will fight and win because the Lord is with them. The Lord as our shepherd is identified by way of contrast. He's identified by his care for us. Zechariah wants you to look now, to look now and to make the comparison with your heart idols and with the Lord himself. Those cheap, lifeless, imitation godlings are no comparison to the incomparable, the incomprehensible and the immensity of the grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son. There is only one, friends, that can satisfy, only one that can satisfy your heart and your soul today and forevermore. And it's not an idol. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God. And so, friends, we all need to come to Christ today. We need to come to him in repentance 
and come to him in trust and faith. And we need to come to him and worship him only, friends. Would you do that today? That's Zachariah's plea, that you would worship the true and the living God, trusting him today. Ask for rain. Amen. Would you pray with me? Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that indeed the Lord Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. He is indeed the true shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. We thank you that Jesus did lay down his life for us, that he bore the penalty of our sin when he gave up his life. But we are ever so thankful that he rose again, rose again in victory over death and sin, so that we too might rise again. Thank you, Lord. May we all believe this today. May we all trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation and receive eternal life forevermore. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. More messages of hope at Essendon Presbyterian Church.org.au or wherever you get your podcasts from.